So we're in our, uh, our last um, sermon of our sermon series on the book of Jonah, and uh, I hope you've been enjoying the, the journey here of Jonah. And uh, if you grew up in the, uh, the 70s or the, 80, or the 80s, you may have remembered a, a show called The Incredible Hulk. Remember this? Right, I mean, today we're, we are flooded with, you know, Marvel movie after Marvel movie, right? It's just like, you know, it's a bit of overkill on the, the superhero movies, right? But, but back then, this was kind of a, it was more of a novel thing to have a, a superhero uh, show or movie. <clears throat> and so, yeah, it was, I think it ran from 78 to 82. It was this four-year span, The Incredible Hulk. And it was, remember, it was uh, the, the bodybuilder Lou Ferrigno. He played, he played the Hulk, and it, it's pretty hilarious when you look back on it now. You know, he's, he's sort of covered in green makeup, and his, his hair's dyed, and he's, you know, doing his, doing his thing. And I can imagine him selling the role to him. He's, Don't worry, there's not a lot of dialogue. Uh, you, you just have to go a lot, and you know, just just flex the muscles. And um, and they, they had the other actor. I think it was called Bill Bixby, um, who was David Banner. The, the character, comic character, is Bruce Banner, but they called him David Banner in the show. Um. And do you remember the, the, the famous line from that, that David Banner would always say? He would always say, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Yeah? You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. And that, that, that was part of the whole show's tension, was throughout the show, there'd always be these, these points where David Banner, he's getting wound up about something, he's starting to get tense, and he's getting anxiety, and, he's, and, and the eyes start turning around, you're like, oh, 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 oh he's going to change into the Hulk. And then he'd sort of back off because he'd, Something would, would help him relax. But eventually, you get to a place in the show every week where you want him to get angry enough to change into the Hulk, don't you? So you can see some old school justice and revenge, right? It's like unleash the beast. And sure enough, out would come the Hulk. Well, in a funny kind of way, this, this is where Jonah is with God and the Ninevites. Right, because Jonah, Jonah's still hoping that God is gonna go all incredible Hulk on them. Right, Jonah's thinking, you're not gonna like it when God's angry. But Jonah's like, but that's what I wanna see. I wanna see God get angry at these Ninevites and bring it to him. And that's kind of where we are in this, in this last chapter of Jonah. We, chapter two, it looked like Jonah had had sort of a change of heart with his prayer of the praise and repentance to the Lord. But now he's kind of, he's kind of back to the same old Jonah that we saw in verse one. And as we look at this passage today in chapter four, we're actually going to begin in verse five. Because chronologically, verses five to eleven actually happened before verses one to four. The, the narrator, sort of, uh, the, the, the author of the book designed it like this for, for effect. But 5 to 11 are actually what happened first. Remember the backstory here. God has called Jonah to preach this message to the Ninevites. And first time around, Jonah says, I'm not doing it. And he tries to flee God. He gets on a boat. He heads out of town. He gets uh, thrown over, over, over the boat. He gets swallowed by a whale. After three days, he's spit out onto land. God comes before him again, and Jonah thinks, well, maybe this time I should probably do what God tells me. And so he goes to the city of Nineveh. And remember, Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, who are like arch enemies of Israel. Jonah hates them, because they're a brutal people, who've suppressed his people. But he goes to Nineveh, 
And he goes through the city preaching the message God has given him, which is this. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And we know from last week or chapter three that to Jonah's dismay, the Ninevites have actually paid attention to the message. And they're repenting. King, remember, he's, he's declared a fast. They're wearing sackcloth. They're repenting. And God has decided he will spare the city of Nineveh and its inhabitants from destruction. And Jonah doesn't like it one bit. He's angry about this. But he's still holding out hope that maybe Nineveh will get its just, diverse, just desserts. And so we just read today, he's, he's outside the city. He's gone through the city, right? He came in from the west. He would have gone through and ended up on the east side of the city. And so just outside the city, he makes a little shelter and shade for himself. He doesn't want to be in the city because he's still hoping the destruction is going to come. So better not be in the city, right? But he makes this little shelter and shade for himself and he sits back to see what's going to happen. You know, it's, if you think of an equivalent today, it would be like, it would be like us getting our lawn chair out and our little sun umbrella and your dunks. And you're going to sit back and watch the fireworks. Well, this is where Jonah is. And he's, he's you know, he's, he's hoping for a little fire and brimstone. He wants Sodom and Gomorrah part two in 3D. But it's here that, that God decides to expose Jonah's hypocrisy. Verse six, it says, Then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Other translations say he was delighted. He was, he was thrilled by this. This was like the best thing that had happened, happened to him probably in months. The Lord's given him this, this extra shade with this plant. And finally, Jonah's probably thinking, at last, something's going right. I'm finally getting a break in life. But it doesn't last long, does it? Verse 7 and 8, but at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he, he grew faint. So the plant that had been, he'd been delighted with, it withers and it dies. One day, it's there for one day and it's gone the next. There goes the shade. And now there's what is described as this scorching east wind that comes across. And actually, it's very possible that this is what is called a, a Sirocco. This is a real weather event, a Sirocco. It's, it's a hot, dusty wind that originates in the Sahara and it moves eastwards, eastwards across the Mediterranean Sea. And what happens with this kind of this hot wind, right? It, uh, it, it's so full of positive ions that as I was researching this, it can actually affect levels of serotonin and other brain neurotransmitters. So it means it can cause things like exhaustion, depression, feelings of irritability, feelings of, of unreality. So there's a good chance this is where Jonah was, right? This wasn't just like a bit of hot weather and a bit of a nasty... No, this was like really, really affecting him. And, you know, verse 9, it says that Jonah, he wanted to die. It would be better for me to die than live. And it's here that God, almost like a counselor, he asks Jonah, is it right for you to be angry 
about the plant? Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah's answer, it's almost like a a melodramatic teenager. You know, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is. And I'm so angry, I wish I was dead. (laughs) That's how I hear it when he says it, you know. Yes, it is. You know, I think of my my little five-year-old and my three-year-old, you know. You say something, but why are you doing that? Because. Because what? Because. John is here. Yeah, you know, yeah, it is. It is right for me to be angry. And notice there, though, that, you know, all joking aside, there's, notice the whiff of self-righteousness from Jonah there. Self-righteousness. Yes, God, I do. I do have a right to be angry about the plant. And, you know, we, we all to a degree have a good, of, a good amount of self-righteousness in us. We don't often realize that's what it is. But we all have a degree of self-righteousness in it, in us. There's a social psychologist by the name of Jonathan Hyde um, in a book called The Righteous Mind. He does a lot of research on this. And he concluded, he said this, self-righteousness is the normal human condition. Self-righteousness is, is the normal human condition. And when you think about it, it is. Because, you know, how many of us feel we have to be, have a right to be offended about something we disagree with? How many of us feel we have the right to hold a grudge against somebody who's hurt us? How many of us feel we have a right to say, no, I won't forgive you? Self-righteousness is, for example, how many people justify the sin in their lives. We're so good at justifying the sin in our lives, right? We feel we have a right to commit various sins because it's connected to self-expression. And self-expression in our society is king, isn't it? It's, it's seen as being authentic and true to ourselves. It's the highest value in our society today. But notice being true to yourself is being elevated above being true to God. Self-righteousness is is why the robber feels justified in stealing from the wealthy. Self-righteousness is why the wealthy feel justified in stealing from the poor. Self-righteousness is how the tyrant justifies their acts of tyranny. You know, most tyrants, think about people like Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot and uh, Mao and people like this, right? They, They all felt self-justified and righteous in what they were doing. As evil as the things they were doing, they found reasons where they, could, where they could say, I believe what I'm doing is actually right. That it's for the good of the people. And it's because of that spirit of self-righteousness. Think about Putin with his invasion of Ukraine. In Putin's mind... He has justification. He's right to be doing what he's doing because of his self-righteousness. C.S. Lewis, he said this, Of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. Those who torment us for our own good 
will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. It's this idea of we know what's best for you that tyrants have, and I'm going to impose it on you, and I'm going to feel good about it because my, my convictions say it's okay. But self-righteousness is something we have to be very wary and aware of. And you know, the sad thing is Christians, right? We can be some of the most self-righteous of the bunch, right? It's sad, but often we have many Christians who essentially have an attitude of the Pharisee. Remember who prayed, thank you, Father, that I am not like these other people. Like the robbers, like the evildoers, like the adulterers, or this tax collector. That's not me. Beware of having a self-righteous attitude. It's a close sibling of arrogance. And it shows actually that we have no understanding of God's grace. Jonah, though, in in his self-righteousness, he believes he has a right to be angry about the plant. He really does. And what this does now, it gives God an opening to highlight Jonah's hypocrisy. So ultimately, God, God is doing this. He's trying to teach Jonah something about himself, about his own heart. And so verses 10 and 11, it says, The Lord says, You've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? You see, see what the Lord's doing there? He's, he's pointing out here that Jonah, he has great concern for this plant that has sprung up overnight. And that word that's used there for concern, it's also the same word we see used in verse 11 when God talks about his concern for the Ninevites. That word in the Hebrew, it literally means to grieve over someone or, or something. To have your heart broken, to weep for it. So what God's essentially saying to Jonah is, you weep over a plant, your heart broken over a plant, but I weep over people. You're weeping over a plant. I weep over people. He said, you can weep over a plant that is here today and gone tomorrow, but you can't weep over 120,000 souls. You say this plant was worthy of life and you're furious it died, but it's okay if 120,000 people die? Do you see how messed up that is, Jonah? And how about the fact that, Jonah, you deserve to die? But you were spared. You see, the sparing of Nineveh and the people of Nineveh is parallel, is a parallel to Jonah being saved. Jonah was an object of divine anger. He was under sentence of death because of his disobedience to God. But he was saved. God spared him. It was by God's grace and mercy that he was saved. At the eleventh hour, wasn't it? And so it is with Nineveh. But Jonah, he's not having it. He doesn't doesn't want this. And it's because of his own self-righteousness. You know, Jonah and Nineveh being saved, though, it's also a parallel to us being saved. 
Because we too, without Jesus, are all under divine judgment and the sentence of death because of the sin in the world and our own hearts. But God's mercy and his grace prevailed through his son Jesus and through the cross. The debt, the price, it's all been paid by Jesus. And then the question becomes, if that's the case, then will we act more like Jonah or the Ninevites? Will we let our own self-righteousness blind us and say, you know, I don't need God. And I certainly don't need saving from anything, thank you very much. Is that, is that the path we want to go? Or will we be like the Ninevites who are convicted and, and torn up by their sin and they repent and they turn to God? You know, God, he weeps over every soul that does not know him. He weeps over every soul that does not know him. And, and we should too. He's, he's full of the same compassion and grace and mercy for those who don't know him as he was for the Ninevites. Nineveh with 120,000 people who were of enormous importance to God. And that's because all human beings are of enormous importance to God. So important that he sent us his one and only son. We might not perish, but have eternal life through him. And, you know, something, something we have to understand and, and to take to heart. And this is, it, it's such a desperately needed message for today, especially, especially amongst our young people. It's a message I wish I could somehow just broadcast in every home that would show up on every smartphone, would come across every social media network. It would be like a blanket statement, but it's this simple statement. You matter to God. You matter to God. Just like the Ninevites mattered to God. And not only do you matter, but you are of infinite importance and value to God. If that wasn't true, he'd have, he wouldn't have sent us Jesus and gone through the suffering of the cross. If it wasn't true, God would have just said, yeah, whatever, I don't care, have at it, eat yourselves to death, I don't care about you. But he didn't do that because you matter. You're of infinite value and worth to God and your life has meaning. You know, the fact that you, you're important to God, that he... He wants to be involved in your life at a personal level. That, that's amazing. The God of the universe, right? He doesn't want to just observe you from, from a distance and let, and let you do your thing. No, he wants to be intimately involved in your life. He wants to be there day in, day out with you, in relationship with you, at all levels of your life. And it's because you're precious and you have more meaning than you could ever know. Without God, life has no lasting meaning. You may find some temporary meaning in life, right? Through accumulating things, getting a nicer house, getting a nicer car, through hobbies, through your career, through uh, your, you know, your family, whatever, right? That'll give you some temporary meaning, but ultimately it's temporary. Without God, your life and existence has no lasting meaning. And it's why many feel empty and hopeless because we're helpless without God. 
We're helpless without God. God knows that we're helpless without him. The world is helpless without God. We Look at the world around us right now. What we are seeing is a helpless world, a world that doesn't know what to do with itself. Let's try this. Let's try that. Oh, that's not working. Okay, let's try this program. Let's do that. Ah, nothing seems to be working. And it's because all is not well. We are not well. And it's because without God in our lives, we're like the Ninevites that God describes in verse 11 as people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. You heard that expression before? I don't know the right hand from the left. We've got two left feet. It's usually how my dancing's described. But God, God's taking pity on the Ninevites. He has compassion for them because they're blind and they're, they're clueless. You know, that cannot tell their right hand from the left. It, it's a figure of speech. It means, it means they're ignorant. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. They're helpless. They're pitiful. Tim Keller says it like this. He says, this is an exceedingly generous way to look at Nineveh. It's a figure of speech that means they are spiritually blind, they have lost their way, and they haven't the first clue as to the source of their problems or what to do about them. Does that not describe where we are today? For many. Spiritually blind. People, many people are spiritually blind. It's not that they're closed off to the spiritual. Most, a lot of people are open, right? Well, how many people say, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual? And they start looking for spirituality in all these places. You know, unfortunately, it's all the wrong places. So they go to tarot cards, they go to wicker, they go to crystals, they go to new age practices. Instead of going to the one true source of power, which is Jesus Christ. That's where, you know, if you, if you want spirituality and you want supernatural power and all this, you go to the source, which is Jesus the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You don't go to these sham, these fake sources, which will deceive you. But so many are spiritually blind and have lost their way. So many people, yeah, I used to go to church. I used to be a Christian. I'm, technically, I'm still a Christian, but I, you know, never stepped foot inside a church for years. Never opened the Bible. Only pray when they need something. And, you know, Keller here says they don't have the first clue as to the source of their problems or what to do about them. And that's because we live in a world where people are afraid to admit that the source of all our problems is sin. You can't solve a problem if you don't know what the root cause is. But if we would only repent and turn back to God. But Jonah, he doesn't want the Ninevites repenting and being spared. That's the last thing he wants. He doesn't want that. And in fact, he's actually, he's furious about it. He's not indifferent. He's furious about this. And this is where now we're going to go back to verse 1 for the last part here. In verse 1 it says, but to Jonah this seemed very wrong and he became angry. Now, if the NIV translation, we use the New International Version translation. Uh, it's a very good Bible translation. But here, if they were going for the understatement of the year award, they'd have got first place. Because it, it, it's too weak. It doesn't really capture how strong Jonah is feeling here. The Hebrew literally says, it became evil wrong to Jonah as a great evil. Now that's important. 
because it highlights once again Jonah's self-righteousness. Think about what Jonah's doing here. Jonah thinks God is doing something terribly wrong. He thinks God is doing something evil. He's saying to God, what you're doing here by sparing the Ninevites, that's evil, God. How many times do we judge God's actions by our human standards? But he's furious. And he goes on, doesn't he, essentially to say, you know, you know, Lord, this is what I was worried about. This is what I was concerned about from the moment you called me to Nineveh. See, I knew, I knew this was going to happen. I knew this was going to happen. I, I knew you were going to do this because I know what you like. And I love how the, the message uh, translates or paraphrases this. It says it like this. <clears throat> Jonah was furious. He lost his temper. He yelled at God. God! I knew it. When I was back home, I knew this was going to happen. That's why I ran off to Tarshish. I knew you were sheer grace and mercy, not easily angered, rich in love, and ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. Oh, I knew it. Jonah is he's arguing at God, and he has a problem with God because of his goodness. Jonah's like, really? You're that good? God's being God. And Jonah's angry at that. Some of you may remember from my Easter Sunday sermon, one of the things I, I sort of, I was having a bit of fun with that expression we use today. You know, you be you. And I pointed out, well, what if you is a jerk? Don't do you. You know, you do you. Well, this is actually a place where you doing you is a good thing. God doing God. This is a good thing. Because he's being who God is, which is sheer grace and mercy. Who's, who's slow to anger. Who's rich in love and compassion. And I love this. He's ready at the drop of a hat to turn plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. Yes, God punishes evil. And it's important that he does, isn't it? Because evil needs to be punished. If you don't punish evil, you're not being good. So God's wrath is actually a necessary component of his goodness. But at the drop of a hat, he's always ready to forgive because God is sheer grace and mercy. Slow to anger, rich and abounding in love. But Jonah, he's he's furious. Because he doesn't want to see his enemies being treated with the same mercy and compassion that he received. And there's the hypocrisy. I'll, I'll, I'll take your, your grace and your forgiveness and your compassion. Thank you very much, Lord. But don't give it to them. They don't deserve it. And God asks him in verse 4. He says, is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? And of course we know it's not because of how God saved him. But you know what? We have to ask ourselves the same question, don't we? Do I have the right to be angry? With everything the Lord's done for, for me, for you, do I have the right to be angry? 
There's a lot of anger out there right now, isn't there? There's a lot of angry people. Do you find yourself being angry a lot of the time? What are you angry about? And is this anger that you are harboring, is it improving your life? Yes, there's, there's a place for righteous anger. Things like the, the mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas the other week. Yeah, we, we should be angry about things like that. But often what we see around us is not righteous anger, but self-righteous anger. I'm entitled to be angry. It's my right to be angry at that person or this situation. You don't know what they did to me. But my question is, are we being Jonah in that moment? You know, we're all familiar now with these, these phrases, okay, boomer, okay, Karen. Well, how about, okay, Jonah? Being angry at the world, at everything you see around you. You know, I see many Christians who, who are angry And yet for many, it wouldn't occur to them that God loves those they're angry with just as much as he loves you. Douglas Stewart, one of my Old Testament professors at Gordon Conwell, he said this, it's always easier to assume that God is with us more than he is with our enemies. There's that that self-righteousness again, always assuming we're on the right side of God's grace and they're not. God's sheer grace and mercy and his compassion and his love, it, it extends just as much to others as it does to us. And we need to pray for those that we're angry with or angry at. That's why Jesus said, pray for your enemies. The answer to God's question, is it right for you to be angry, is no, it's not right for us to be angry. That God would love our enemies as much as he loves us. In fact, Despite the woes of the world, despite our circumstances and all that's happening around us, our de facto disposition should still be one of joy, thankfulness, and gratefulness. Because we've been shown God's mercy and compassion. He's rescued us from the grave through Jesus. And we have a future of infinite joy and peace that awaits us in eternity with God. And nothing in this life should be able to steal that eternal joy and promise. You may have a whole life of trials. But when you become before the throne of God and you have eternity before you, you're going to realize that was a blip in the ocean. This book of Jonah, it's unique in that it really doesn't have closure. Does it? You notice how it ends? Very open-ended. There's no closure there. It ends on a cliffhanger. And we never get to find out if Jonah's attitude changed towards the Ninevites. We just don't know. We don't know if Jonah turned around and said, you know what, Lord, I was wrong. We don't know. But you know what? It's never too late for us to change our attitudes towards those we perceive as our enemies. And so I, I want to wrap up our series on Jonah with, with three challenges 
that have surfaced as we've gone through this book. And here, here are the three challenges. They really, most of them, they, they involve self-reflection and going to God with some, some tricky questions. So first of all, ask God to reveal in your heart where you are operating in self-righteousness. Because <clears throat> we all are on so, some level. I, I know I, there are places of self-righteousness in my heart that need work. So ask God to reveal in your heart where you're operating in self-righteousness. And while you're there, look out for its siblings, arrogance and self-justification. The places in your life where you're trying to justify something that really is, is wrong in God's eyes. Secondly, this is a tough one. Ask God to bring to mind someone, something, or a, a group of people that he wants you to pray for. In other words, ask God to show who are the Ninevites in your own life. That could be, it could be people from a different religion. It could be people who are the political opposite of you. Maybe it's even praying for the Yankees. Okay, yeah, let's push it. Okay. You don't have to do that one. No. But who are the Ninevites in your life? that God wants you to pray for mercy for. And then thirdly and lastly, know that God is a God of sheer grace and mercy, that he really is slow to anger, is the longest fuse you can imagine, that he is abounding in love and compassion. And because of that, you matter. You matter. Your life has infinite worth and value because God says it does.